Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us on the podcast today is Fidelity Investment Director Tom Stevenson. He discusses increases in both employment and annual wage growth, its implications for the European Central Bank, and where investors can find opportunity in a higher interest environment. Tom explains to host Pamela Ritchie that wage growth is still very strong in the UK, despite slow GDP growth at 0.1% quarter on quarter. With UK interest rates sitting at 4.5%, Tom predicts that the Bank of England will raise rates by another quarter point. Tom says that while AI has the potential to become a transformative technology, it also can have negative implications for job losses and other labour market disruptions. As seen in the airline industry, Tom emphasizes that technological revolutions can change the world, but not necessarily the fortunes of investors. This episode was recorded on June 14, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. There is an awful lot to dissect within the UK market itself. We've got, got the Fed acting this afternoon, but let's zero in on the interest rate story for the UK and, and also Europe. It's, it's been quite an inflation story that is um, still there. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of um, a lot of data out uh, in the UK over the last uh, couple of days. So we, uh, you mentioned the wage growth uh, figure. So wage growth still very, very strong in in the UK, and that's despite um, uh, growth in GDP actually being relatively disappointing. So the economy as a whole is pretty sluggish. Uh, we've had a year now of of growth of just sort of 0.1 percent quarter on quarter. Uh, This morning, we had the latest figures for April. It's just 0.2% month on month. So it's it's pretty sluggish growth. But yesterday, we had the wage data uh, showing that private sector wages growing between 7% and 8% uh, a year. So that poses a real problem for the Bank of England, which will be announcing uh, interest rates here in the UK next week, next Thursday. um, Because you know, on the one hand, they need to support the economy. On the other hand, it's, it's still the job is unfinished when it comes to to inflation. Uh, so I think it's extremely likely that we'll see another quarter point uh, rate hike, already four and a half percent here in the UK. They're talking um, of rates going as high as five and three quarter percent uh, in the UK, which is um, well. well that's pretty spectacular and it would cause a real problem uh, for the housing market uh, in particular. A lot of mortgages are rolling over at the moment and people who are used to paying 2%, even less than 2% uh, on their mortgages are suddenly going to be facing 5 or 6%. Uh, it's, it's hard to see that that won't have a big impact on the economy here in the UK. Yeah, no, fascinating. So, I mean, the degree to which, so in Canada, unlike the US, there are lots of variable rate mortgages and, you know, there's a mix. 
in Canada. How, how similar is that to the UK? Yeah, there is a mix here, but increasingly in recent years, people have moved to fixed rate mortgages, which in the short term cushions people. They haven't really noticed this, um, uh, this uh, slow but steady rise in, in interest rates month by month. Uh, interest rates have uh, have risen from from next to nothing to to four and a half percent. It protects them in the short term, but then suddenly there's a cliff edge uh, because you get to the end of your two year fix or your five year fix, um, and in particular the two year fixes is a problem because many people took out mortgages during the pandemic. There was a bit of a boom in the housing market. Interest rates were extremely low. People took advantage and got very favourable interest rates. For a short period of time, those are now rolling off, and uh, and that's where the problem lies. Interesting. So the ECB itself also it's it's difficult across Europe. They have a lot of different economies actually going on. Of course, it's always the case. Um, how tense is it with the ECB continuing to indicate that rates must go higher? Yeah, it's 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 a similar situation in the continental Europe as it is in the UK, because on the one hand, we've got really a very sluggish economy. In fact, the economy in places like Germany, Germany, of course, the the powerhouse of the of the European economy is now officially in recession. It's had two quarters of of declining uh, growth um, and and other other countries in Europe as well are, are similarly um, not growing at all. Um, at the same time, they have a big inflation problem, not quite as big as here in the UK. Um, our, our inflation problem is, is, is a little bit idiosyncratic. It's a bit specific to the UK and relates to the, the tightness of our labour market. Not quite the same thing in, in Europe, but they still do have a much higher uh, inflation rate than, for example, in, in, in the US. It's just not coming down. Uh, quickly enough. So the ECB has been really clear that it's going to keep raising rates until it gets on top of inflation. And that's where the tension lies. And that's where the tension lies. So, so can we just sort of continue to, to take a look at the European story, just as we're on that now. It's um, been a bit of a gangbuster story since the beginning of this year. With Germany in recession, as you said, the powerhouse, is there a way to sort of think, well, now that they're in it, for instance, equity markets can look through, you know, well beyond if sort of the worst has happened on some level. Is, is, is there a, a thought from equity investors that that's the case? How does Europe look right now with Germany in recession? I think there are a lot of moving parts in the in the European uh, economy. Um, we've talked in the past about the importance of China to uh, to, to the European export exporters. Um, and China has been a, a, a notable disappointment so far this year. The expectation six months ago was that China was going to pull itself out of uh, COVID very quickly and there'd be a big bounce back in the uh, economy. And that was expected to, to lead to uh, high demand for, for European exports. Because that hasn't really happened, and I think people don't really understand why it hasn't happened. Um, uh, and, and it may be to do with just the, the length and depth and extent of the COVID restrictions in China. But anyway, the recovery has not happened. And I think that has fed through into the European equity markets because the European recovery story, which everyone got very excited about really in the last quarter of last year, in the first quarter of this year, was premised to 
quite a high degree on that Chinese story. So the failure of that to come through has, has been a bit of a problem for investors. And then add in the ECB's um, squeeze on inflation and the, and the German recession, and it starts to look uh, a less exciting story in Europe than maybe it did six months or so ago, not least actually because the market moved ahead quite, quite well. Right. Okay. Really interesting to get to get those thoughts. Um, just briefly, while we stay uh, within the general region, going back to the UK for a minute, the equity markets. Um, I mean, it's interesting. There's lots of dividend payers. There's a so-called value trade can do quite well when you're looking at UK markets, for instance. We have seen rates be pretty high on on gilt bonds, gilt gilts, basically. What what does that spell ultimately? Does that harness things and from a government perspective, from you know large investors perspective, what, what do you see there with with um, gilt rates rising? The UK government bond market is really interesting at the moment. So um, you'll remember, um, go back to last autumn, there was a lot of political turmoil in the UK. Uh, we had the very short-lived Liz Truss government. We had this uh, ill-fated um, budget where unfunded spending promises were made and, and the markets um, called foul and, um, and gilt yields shot up uh, last autumn. Well, they came back down again pretty quickly because the, the government was replaced and there was a sense that stability had, had been returned to, to UK politics. That was good. What we're seeing now is the inflation story and the interest rate story has driven government bond yields back up. They are now above the level that they were at um, last uh, last autumn. So uh, that uh, well, there are two two aspects to this. One, that's a real problem for uh, anyone looking to take out a mortgage. For an investor, it actually starts to look like a very interesting opportunity because I don't think gilt yields are sustainable at that level because uh, the squeeze on the economy and especially on the housing market is going to be such that uh, interest rates are going to start coming down at some point, probably quite quickly. And I think what that means is for investors, they are now able to lock in two-year gilts, 10-year gilts at, you know, four and a half, five percent. And then as interest rates come down, the possibility then of a capital gain on top of that, you're very easily looking at sort of high single digits, maybe 10 percent total return uh, on a government bond. Quite an interesting opportunity, I think. And what and I, in fact, just this morning I was reading in the in the media um, uh, some articles saying that fund managers are starting to move very heavily into UK gilts at the moment. They see that opportunity. That is fascinating. It's it's really, really fascinating. Okay, so let's move a little bit further afield. Um, going back to the idea of China reopening, I think it has everyone, and also the currency story, which I think a lot of people sort of implicitly understand, looking for alternative currencies around the world, alternative opportunities. Japan has been high on the list, actually, for the last few months. We've seen lots of a flurry of big investors visiting Japan to check out their investments and so on. Um, where does Japan fit into the global investment story right now? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, we saw Warren Buffett uh, over in over in Tokyo, and he he doesn't uh, he doesn't travel to Japan very often. So that's uh, quite an indication that he's uh, you know he's he's he well I mean, he does he does he made some he made some big investments in Japan a few years ago. But interesting that he's going there to check up on on, on how they're doing. I think the Japan story is very interesting, uh, and indeed the performance of the Japanese market over the last six months has been you know really really strong. Um, uh, the perennial disappointment the Japanese market has finally finally seemed to come to good, and I think it's a I think it's a combination uh, of events. On the one hand, the Japanese market was just cheap; it was a lot cheaper than than comparable uh, developed world um, markets. Um, the inflation story is interesting in Japan because inflation in Japan is kind of now at that sweet spot. It's not. At the, it, the problem in Japan has always been deflation, um, and they don't have the high inflation problem that we have in the UK and Europe. They're in that middle patch of between three and four percent, which actually is quite a healthy place uh, for inflation to be, especially after a long period of, of deflation. And I think, the, but the crucial thing about Japan is there seems to be some genuine structural change going on in the way that companies are managed, in the way that publicly quoted companies are thinking about their shareholders. Historically, shareholders have almost been second-class citizens in, 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 in the Japanese uh, concept. They've not been very high up the pecking order in terms of priorities. Uh, the, 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 the Tokyo Stock Exchange and the government is really encouraging companies to think about their return on equity, um, and that's feeding through into higher dividend payments, higher share buybacks, and all of a sudden, the outlook just looks much more uh, attractive to, to investors in Japan. And that's true of both Japanese investors, but also foreign investors. And it's the combination of the two which is driving the Japanese market. It's also um, exposed to China. I mean, it's sort of you're we're talking about the European dependence on, on, on exports to China um, and also consumers from China traveling back to Europe. But Japan also is is certainly exposed to China and, and to much of the same story in a way, isn't it? Yeah, in in a in a in a, in a big way on 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 two counts. I mean, one, uh, China is a is a big export market for for Japan. Uh, obviously, I mean, uh, the things that Japan is is good at uh, in in terms of uh, machine tools and automation, robotics, lots of things that go into China. And then coming the other way, of course, um, Chinese tourism was a big driver of revenue uh, for Japan pre-pandemic, and it stopped completely for, for three years. That is now just beginning to pick up. Um, so that's helping the, the, the domestic um, uh, consumer story um, as well. In terms of investors, Japan has another big advantage for foreign investors, which, you know, to put it bluntly, is that it's not China. You know, with all the with all the uncertainty about uh, the the um, the geopolitical relationship between China and the U.S., um, Japan actually is seen by many overseas investors as a foothold in the Asian region, but without those political uh, complexities. So I think that's another reason why people are looking at Japan. 
There's some great, I want to get into market breadth and what you see there and, and sort of comparisons to history, but there's some great questions coming in. So let's let's go to those. So one of them is on metals, where you see them going this year. It also relates well back to what's traded on the LSE. And the other is thoughts on the healthcare sector across Europe and the UK. So healthcare and then the metals story, particularly gold. Yes, I mean, uh, commodities is interesting, and it's certainly interesting from a UK perspective, because one of the reasons why the um, uh, the UK market has been a relative underperformer um, uh, recently um, uh, is, you know, we're, we're kind of in the wrong place. You know, we're not in technology, um, and that has obviously driven uh, the, 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 the market um, uh, recovery in the US. We are heavily into commodities um, both oil and gas, but, but also metals. And so the decline in, in prices in both of those areas has been a drag on, on, on the UK um, market. Very interesting. On the healthcare side of things, big pharma companies, of course, in, in Europe and particularly the UK. So how do you see sort of the healthcare sector ultimately? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the healthcare sector probably is, um, is having its own sort of post-COVID hangover in a way. I mean, that was such a big driver of healthcare um, activity. And we actually saw that um, uh, here in the UK in our GDP figures today, that, uh, that um, activity in healthcare uh, was a real drag on, on GDP because it's just, just slowed down um, since, the, uh, since the pandemic. So I think, you know, uh, um, healthcare and, and, and pharma was a big beneficiary of, of COVID, and I think it's now uh, working out how to thrive, survive and thrive in a, in a post-COVID world. Yeah, fascinating. So let's get, you, there's a recent article of yours in The Telegraph that does some amazing comparisons to when there have been, throughout history, some, some massive technological changes and how that can work very well, and you know, if you're invested the right way, you can really follow that along. And in other ways, it can be just sort of surprisingly not useful uh, to the overall stock market gains from a new technology. AI is the obvious discussion point for today, and you, and you, you talk about it in this light. Um, it just gives us a sense of sort of big changes in the past, maybe using one or two of your examples, which were, I thought fabulous. Yeah, so so I was I was thinking about this whole AI um, um, love affair in the in the in the stock market at the moment. I mean, really, you know, AI is not the only reason that that um, that the, the U.S. stock market has risen so strongly, but it's a key driver of of those technology stocks. I mean, Nvidia is is the obvious uh, example. And I was just thinking about AI, and I was thinking about these big technological revolutions that have happened over time, and how um, that might feed through into the experience of a, a stock market investor, because whether it's canals or um, the railway or, or radio or the internet, I mean, over the years, there have been many of these transformational um, technologies, which have sometimes led to um, uh, fantastic returns for investors. Very often, they've led to bubbles, which have then burst. Uh, that was, of course, famously true of railways. It was famously true of, of the internet. And I was just wondering whether it might also be true of, of AI, because clearly AI has the potential to be a, a completely transformative um, technology. But it also there's a dark side to it as well in terms of um, the potential for job losses and disruption of, of the, the labor market. 
And I was just thinking about, I, I, I thought back to um, one of the huge transformations of Western economies was um, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the economies were completely based on the horse. Um, in a, they were everywhere, you know, yeah, horses were the horse, the horse. And they were replaced by the motor car in, in a matter of a generation. Within a generation, there weren't any horses, any, well, there were some horses, but they were not a big part of the economy. And the motor car uh, was transformative. But it was transformative in ways which maybe people wouldn't have predicted. So, uh, for example, in the 1920s, almost all cars in the United States were bought on uh, consumer credit. So um, that, that the whole sort of consumer finance industry was really born out of the motor car. The advertising industry was really born out of the development of the, the motor car, persuading people to buy it. So, um, you know, sometimes the, the implications are not, are not obvious and maybe the implications of AI will not be obvious. And then the last thing I wanted to draw attention to was sometimes a, a technological revolution can change the world but cannot change investors' fortunes. And the, the great example of that, of course, is the airline industry. Warren Buffett famously said that, you know, the best thing that anyone could have done on the day that the Wright brothers took off at Kitty Hawk was to shoot them down. Because actually from an investor's perspective, yes, air, air travel changed the world, but it's been a disaster for investors because there have been big losers, there have been big cycles, as much money has been lost out of air travel as has been gained. So it was just a bit of lateral thinking really about, well, what does AI mean for the world and what does it mean for investors? Fascinating. So, and, and as you say, you know, it could take a generation for, for anything really to work its way through and to become sort of part of the furniture. Um, so what then do you make of what we're seeing with some of the tech darlings ultimately in the market and what and what they're doing based on the AI story largely yeah. not completely but largely yeah i mean i think that's i think that is the 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 most interesting market story at the moment is this is this massive divergence that we're seeing between um uh the the the, the small handful of companies which are driving the US market to to new highs and indeed uh, just last week, um, uh, we had the trigger, we had this bull market trigger of the market rising 20% above its October low. So technically speaking, the S&P 500 is in a bull market, but it doesn't kind of feel that way if you look outside that small handful of, uh, uh, of uh, companies. So, I mean, since the start of the year, the, um, the S&P 500 is up 13%, but, um, if you look at if you look at an equally weighted version of the S&P 500, so not weighted by market capitalization, but just every company in the index given an equal weight, um, it's actually only up three percent. That's a fantastic difference. Uh, yes. between, and what it's saying is that for most companies at the moment, they're more concerned about what's happening with the earnings outlook, uncertain. They're more concerned about interest rates and they're obviously not big beneficiaries of AI necessarily. So, um, yes, technically we're in a bull market, but it kind of doesn't feel that way. And I think that's a very interesting market story. Very interesting. Um, a question coming in, going back to the discussion of Japan, what it might represent to investors. So this question is, 
Uh, please, Tom, can you comment on inflation and the credit markets in Japan? Well, I mean, in, inflation, as I say, is it, it's been so many years that um, there hasn't been any inflation. So, I mean, I, I lived and worked in Japan in, in the late 1980s and I went back to Japan recently and many of the things that, you know, that I was buying uh, in the late 1980s were um, the same price today as they were then. That's amazing. Yeah. Really? Amazing. You, go, you go and buy a bowl of ramen it costs the same as it did in 1988. I mean, so many things are, are um, uh, you know, ex exactly, the, exactly the same price as they were. So I'm just going to have to decline this call, which yes, is rather right. annoying. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so, so inflation is, is now back, um, but, it's, but it's back in a kind of healthy way. It's, it's, it's in a way which is encouraging people to spend. The thing about deflation is it's absolute killer for an economy because if you think that something is going to be cheaper in a year's time, well, what's the point in buying? What's the point in investing in your company because you might as well do it in, in a year's time? What's the point in replacing your car if it's going to be cheaper in, in a year's time? It's an absolute killer. So to have inflation back at sort of three, four percent is really very healthy for the Japanese economy. That's fascinating to see sort of ultimately where that goes. I mean, when, when you think a little bit outside of where the AI story goes, you, you hear these anecdotal discussions that every company on the S&P 500 is consulting one of the big tech darlings about how to use AI inside their own sometimes old world um, companies. Um, I mean, that is the type of second derivative perhaps uh, effect and and ultimately how you invest that. I mean, what, what do you think about that when you hear about those discussions of how it may be developed and people invest in the developers, but it ultimately benefits, as you say, other places. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 picks and shovels, isn't it? It's it, it's it's and this, of course, is why Nvidia has been such a such a massive beneficiary of the whole AI story because it makes the chips which are so important uh, to to AI. Um, and so you're right, it is these second, second level, second derivative beneficiaries that I think people should be, be looking for. And, and also the, the risk is that you get sucked into the story. And I think Nvidia is a good example of that. You know, a year ago it was trading on 50 times earnings, already quite expensive. Um, it's now trading on 200 times earnings. So I think the more interesting, there are more interesting places to look. I mean, the, the likes of Microsoft, um, the likes of Alphabet, you know, they, they are beneficiaries of the AI story, but maybe less obviously so. And I think that's where the investment interest lies. So is, is sort of the discussion of positioning right now, is it too diversified because we are still in a somewhat unknown marketplace? I mean, would that be what you'd like to leave investors with? Yes, I think diversification is absolutely key at the moment because there's a there's so much divergence between um, uh, performance levels within markets, but also between markets. I mean, we've talked about many of the the, the markets. You know, the, the the U.S. you know in a bull market, China really doing very badly, Europe doing badly, the, the U.K. kind of working out whether it's cheap or whether it's cheap for a reason. Um, Japan, you know, all of these markets in very different positions. And then, of course, you've got the, the what's going on with the bond market and equities. Bonds look very attractive. Equities, I think, face a few challenges in terms of earnings and, and interest rates. 
So I think the way to handle that is to be extremely well diversified and probably more so now than, than ever. Great. Fascinating. Tom Stevenson, thank you very much for joining us on Fidelity Connects. It's always great to, to get some of your thoughts and, and everyone can follow them in the Telegraph too. Great articles that go out there each week. All the best to you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.